0: Hello and welcome to another edition of The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alexandreau. My guest today is James Ashton, who, as a business journalist writing for The Telegraph, The Daily Mail, The Times, The Independent, The Scotsman, Business AM, The Financial Times, and Reuters, and as city editor of The Sunday Times and The Evening Standard, it is fair to say has spent a lifetime interviewing business leaders. I once uh, read in a Harvard business review that describing leadership is similar to the challenge of describing a bowl. One can easily define it in terms of the clay from which it is made or the process of its manufacture and its total size. But no true picture can emerge until one includes the hollow, the negative space that defines the bowl's capacity. James Ashton's latest book, The Nine Types of Leader, How the Leaders of Tomorrow Can Learn from the Leaders of Today, attempts to do both, to describe both the clay leadership is made of, but more importantly, the space it creates for an organisation to flourish. Welcome, James.
1: Alex, thank you. Thanks. It's great to be on.
0: Your attempt to categorise nine types of leader, alphas, fixers, sellers, founders, science, lovers, campaigners, diplomats, and humans. It seems to me, reading the book, you could have easily made them four or five, with some being hybrids, or separated them into 15. Why were these nine the ones you landed on?
1: It's a good question. I think I should answer, try and answer this through using the medium of of, of clay and, and enamel because it's a wonderful analogy you 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 started with, and and I did try to to get to a little bit in the writing of it. The what, what were the raw materials? How did these CEOs get there in the first place? Um, so how did I get to nine? You're right. I mean, what is what is the right number? I started with a couple that I was really really interested in, and one of the joys for me of of going into interview a CEO for one of these uh, weekend profile slots is you have a good scour across their CV, first of all, and you see mm. where they've been, um, where the gaps are, where, where the big decisions and the jumps might have come. I think there are some obvious ones in there that readers would be familiar with. So founders, and I think to some degree, you know, campaigners, that are business leaders that are mm. very good at profit plus purpose. And then I, I tacked on the ones that I thought were... Um, were were curious, and I've always been very interested in family run businesses. So the scions. So what do you do um, if you you inherit from your father or mother, and then to what degree do you stick close to that legacy? And fixers, I think, are very interesting people that mend broken companies. I added on and added on, and I got to nine, and it felt about right. I suppose that's as scientific as 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 um, as it was.
0: Shall we look at a few examples then from sure. politics and business, just to. Pair them off and maybe explore uh, some of the categories. So I will give you Angela Merkel, Donald Trump, Rupert Murdoch, and Bill Gates.
1: Yeah, I think I think Donald Trump is um, is the alpha. I think what's interesting about Trump is I say through a lot of the chapters in this book that what makes good modern leadership and forward thinking leadership. Particularly, you see it in the humans chapter. I think it explains why these sellers have have risen up through organisations so well. I think they're very, very good communicators. Now, you don't normally think of an alpha as a good communicator. They don't usually care what anybody thinks about them. But social media, you know, were his were his absolutely his tool, the tools of his trade. So it's quite interesting as to how he arranged his ascent, if you like. So I put him absolutely in the alpha
0: category. How about Angela Merkel?
1: What would I put her? I think you you could put her in the, um, the 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 diplomats category. I think she is firm but fair. I think she's quite consensual in how she um, she operates, and I think she's quite humble with it. If you like, you know, I, I don't remember seeing any pictures of Donald Trump um, going down the shops, for example. Whereas, yes, uh, yes, you yes. Know, Angela Merkel is m- much less concerned about uh, the image. It's much more human than superhuman.
0: Now, how about Rupert Murdoch? Well, it's interesting because he did inherit, of
1: course, there's a question mark with some of these founders versus science. At what point do you do you draw the line? He inherited a handful of newspapers from his uh, father and clearly built a huge uh, empire off the back of that. I think I would have to yeah. think of him as the founder. And the issue with the founder is you have great credibility, I think, in that you were the person sat at the metaphorical kitchen table to begin with. You uh, you grew this empire from nothing from whatever your back of the uh envelope plan calculations that you had. I think the challenge for the founder is to know when to step back and to hand over. We've seen it recently. Yes, and we've, seen it, on. Yes, and we've uh, seen it recently with um with Jeff Bezos. You know, what point is 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 the right moment to hand over and and some do it very well and some you might pick out um Stelios from EasyJet. It's a much more tortured handover. if you can you can let go and so with <laughs> with rupert murdoch i mean he must be loosening the strings by now because of, because of his age and, and arguably you can say that there was a degree of letting go um when the businesses were demerged a few years ago into tv and satellite and to newspapers and then mm. a lot of that was sold off so i think there's been a letting go there
0: yeah and what about bill gates
1: I mean, he is, he is very, very easily the founder from memory, either the founder or the co-founder of Microsoft. I think what's interesting is what he's gone on to do with it. Obviously, the company. I think he's still a shareholder in the company, but he he has long ago left the company behind. It sank a little, and it's risen up now under under Satya Nadella and this huge wall of money that's uh, gone into tech companies, in particular, in the last year when when we've all been locked down. I think he's quite um, an an efficient campaigner now. He's not quite working off that corporate platform and, and marrying profit with purpose, but he is undoubtedly through the foundation putting his money to good use.
0: I recently interviewed Dr. Pippa Mungren, who has been a strategy advisor to everyone from UBS to President George W. Bush and has also written a book on leadership. And she suggests that the truly successful leader of the now is constantly fluid. It's a sort of balancing of styles, a management capoeira in perpetual movement. Is there such a thing as a chameleon leader? Have you come across someone who you thought... He's aware of the different styles and borrows elements to suit the task.
1: I think leaders like to think they're very adaptable and very versatile. And it's true as their careers go on, they gain understanding of new markets, new industries, new technologies, and so on. I don't think the taxonomy of my book is something that a lot of business leaders would welcome, because I don't think they like to be Pigeonhole too much, I mean there mm-hmm. are examples there are um, there are types I think that a lot of leaders will gravitate to whether that's campaigner or the human but but on balance, I think a lot of them develop a playbook whether they have real strengths in sales and marketing or fixing companies, and I think they repeat them over several times in their career. I think what's an interesting thing that you mentioned there and that Pippa talked about is is the measure of success. I mean, you can argue that leadership has become a lot harder, companies have become a lot larger, and there are a lot of metrics by which you can measure success and failure. So, you know, small violin mm. for mm. the uh, CEO who's paid five to 10 million pounds a year. I think a good leader helps to define their own success. And I don't. by that, I don't mean they're thinking about legacy within five minutes of joining the company. I think they're taking their organization on a journey and they're saying, we are going to achieve this, whatever that may be. The problem with the way some leaders are remunerated is um, total shareholder return, share price movement is quite often something that's um, totally out with their control. And, and also mm-hmm. things they might do when they're three to five years in charge. They're, they plant seeds for the legacy, but you don't really know how well the organization is, is fared until maybe five years, three years after they've gone.
0: You boil the brief of leading down to three basic elements. Purpose, meaning does this person stand for something? Authenticity, meaning are they credible? And delivery, meaning will they achieve their goal? And it seems to me that the former two relate to how a person presents themselves. And only the third is a matter of cold, hard record. How can we tell the leaders who will deliver before they're in a position to? I'm thinking of politicians specifically. How do we as a voting public interview them for the position in order to get clear hints of whether they possess the third quality, the quality of delivery.
1: The way to get picked for a CEO role, the way to get elected, I think you have to be, I, you know, I hate these words like, you know, authentic, authenticity and passion and so on, but you have to be believable. You have to be able to um, talk in an everyday language, uh, set out your stall, um, set out, you know, what could go right, what could go wrong. It has to be something that's, th- that, seemingly achievable. I think if you are a politician on the stump promising trillions of pounds of investment or, or you know moonshot schemes, I think you need to bring it back to um, to what's actually uh, achievable in the day-to-day.
0: Which only serves to deepen the mystery of Sven Joran Eriksson, I think who seemed to possess zero passion and conviction when he talked about the job.
1: Well, my wife is Swedish, and, and she uh, so she had some, uh, well, not much awareness of him uh, before he got the England job, but she, I think she was as mystified as anyone. The whole of Sweden was mystified to job. <laughs>
0: um, you also often talk about a leader's engine. Now, Thatcher is famously fabled to have only slept four or five hours a night, Johnson reportedly loses concentration when presented with a brief that's more than a side of A4. Is there a rather undervalued physical quality to leadership, the ability to operate at high capacity for long periods? Is that something that we overlook in favour of slightly less tangible qualities?
1: when I've done a lot of these interviews, you, you have what you call the furniture on the page. So if you look at something like the Sunday Times section, you will always have working day and downtime. So there's a real fascination in how these wonderfully successful people do it on a day-to-day basis. So that, that's why you have these working day boxes that say things like, woke up at 5.30, checked my emails from, from Asia, went to the gym for two hours, had breakfast, and then I, I had meetings every 15 minutes until until midnight or something something crazy like that. <laughs> but I think actually is, uh, I think this comes back to to self-awareness. If you are, it could be totally overwhelming to wake up every morning and think, you know, I run this company, there are 300,000 people, we have r- revenues and operations in, in every country in the world and so on. So I think how they use their time is really, really interesting and, um, and worth studying. And the CEOs I've interviewed and they said, look, I, I don't really have time to read books, but I do have people that read them for me.
0: A lot of these people appear slightly superhuman. And, you know, having interviewed them for many years, I I don't know how much of that is a mystique that they cultivate or or how much of it is genuinely true. I mean, do they get up at four o'clock and get on the treadmill and then, you know, go all the way through to one o'clock so they can look at the markets in Asia? Or is there a certain amount of myth-building?
1: I think the, the the successors today can't bank on the myth, can't bank on the mysticism. They have to be much more human than, than superhuman. That said, mm. I think, well, I think there are all flavors. I think there are those CEOs who have a quite light touch and probably don't put a huge number of hours in and trust their team and don't try to be everywhere and don't try to be across the details. But I think you also have... There's so many instances in the CEOs I've interviewed. It's it's not where they are. They're expert sports people. Um, So you know Tim Davy now DG at the BBC has run one of these awful multi marathons across the uh, across the African desert, and you've got competitive swimmers and so on. And actually, in the first chapter, I go back to how do these CEOs get where they are, and there are instances where the big talent factories, if you call them this, say a McKinsey or a Goldman Sachs or a Procter and Gamble, Mm. they do look Mm -hmm. at people who have academic excellence, but they're also looking for something else. They're looking for hinterland and they're looking looking for competitive streaks. So that's why people who have taken up a sport and pursued it to some degree are easy hires for some of these organisations. So mm, I think that, and if you've done that when you're teens, you just carry on swimming or running right through, and it does become part of the part of the routine.
0: Now there have been various studies on the incidence of mental disorder in positions of le- leadership. Several. There was a big one done by a Canadian, but there was a recent one uh, for the APS that found that up to twenty one percent of uh managers had clinically significant psychopathy compared to one percent in the general population and this is something we see replicated again and again does that tally with your experience is there is there a touch of the mania uh to these people
1: mania i wonder um i again i don't know how if this strays into i mean it's difficult to call dedication mania and and and, and your le- your managers is is that mid-tier do you think or or more at the top end you're talking it about was
0: high, it was high it was high tier yeah it was high tier they were looking at and it was basically they were examining whether you know the the qualities of uh you know being unconcerned about the feelings of those around you being able to dissemble easily, uh, being able, you know, being cutthroat in many ways, where qualities which institutionally organizations tend to promote. And that's why you end up with a lot of a higher incidence, I would say, of damaged individuals on the top.
1: I think that could be where it, it has been. That could, that could be something, for leadership in, in years gone by. I wonder now whether we have had corporations that are very insular. It's been all about beating the competition and winning market share and so on. I think the pandemic has emphasized this. Companies don't exist in a vacuum. There needs to be, there has been this uh, Underscoring of social contract, if you like, that companies mm. you'd have to work within their communities with their suppliers and with governments, and many of them have been saved by governments over the last um twelve months. so I think I think companies are a lot more porous than they've ever been. We're living in what I would call the glass door era. Uh, you know Someone who sat inside an organization can very easily have a conversation and publicize a point with someone outside the organization, so I think hopefully yeah. that dissipates some of the mania.
0: Now, what sort of leader, finally, are you in your own life, in your own professional life? Um, What have you looked at from your manual and thought, yes, that's how this works? Well,
1: I do feel with with a book out, I'm I'm a full-time seller at the moment, um, uh, <laughs> which is a totally new phenomenon Alex because I really I'm, as you know from reading
0: uncomfortable you. is it
1: <laughs> well thank you for reading and but you know I've been used to asking the questions for many years so it's a new thing yes to, that's to be true. answering them
0: I, I found the portions of your book where you say how how you prepared for an interview as interesting as the bits about leadership I have to be honest I found them very very instructive for someone who is inexperienced in the interviewing game as it were
1: well I think you have I think it feels like you've done your homework today, so thank you. So I would say I've been a bit, a bit of a seller, and, and I suppose uh, because I'm because I'm s- self-employed, I feel like I have to be quite a diplomat in the home. We all have to get on at the moment, so maybe my wife would give a different answer, but I think I'm part seller, part <laughs> diplomat.
0: <laughs> She'll probably gaze an alpha. <laughs> James Ashton, thank you for your time and for your clear-eyed contribution. Thank you so much. James Ashton's book, The Nine Types of Leader, is out on paperback now. And listeners, remember there's a new bunker daily on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays and a longer weekly episode featuring a full panel every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate us. Leadership, it is said, is like the sun shining on a meadow. Provided the elements are in the right place and a balance maintained, all the sun has to do is is give generously and in return everything will naturally grow in its direction. In these times of long darkness and strangling weeds, this is vital to remember. This is Alexandre in the bunker saying over and down.
1: The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandre. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.